0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. The
1: Institute
0: of Art and Ideas,
1: articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Life is strangely puzzling, genetics, and
2: evolutionary theory have combined to give a seemingly watertight account of life on
1: Earth. Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Airbus, global leaders in aeronautics, space and related services, as our speakers go in search for the mystery of life. We don't even have an agreed definition of what life is. As we explore the
2: planets of the solar system and look at those beyond, researchers hope they'll find
1: evidence of life. But would it be like life on Earth? So will we find other forms of life? Or is the wish to find such forms a science fiction fantasy that serves Hollywood and has little to do with reality? To discuss these questions, we have Professor in Evolutionary Biochemistry at University College London, and an author on many prize-winning books on the subject, including The Vital Questions and Life Ascending, Nick Lane. He'll be joined by Space Scientist and Professor of Planetary and Space Science at The Open University, monica grady and finally head of future missions at airbus and a specialist in the engineering for new scientific space missions ralph cordy thanks so much for listening and once you've finished today's episode please do head over to our website for our latest updates and news from philosophy for our times where you'll find our latest episodes and podcast playlists created just for you at www.iei.tv back now to Jana teller who hosts this week's episode We'll start this uh,
2: event with uh, three-minute pitches from each of the participants on the overall question of, is the wish to find other life forms a science fiction fantasy? And I think, um, Nick, if you would start us off on this.
3: (laughs) Okay. so I I mean, what do we mean by science fiction? I think what science fiction tries to do, uh, the best of science fiction, is to explore possible scientific futures. And I think the search for life in space is very much um, the the frontier of science at the moment. So it's very much science fact, it's not science fiction. What are we actually looking for? Then we're perhaps beginning to get more into the realms of science fiction. And I think there's perhaps an argument to say, well, we're too constrained in our imagination. Life could be anything. There was a a lovely quote from JBS Haldane who said, the universe is not only more weird than, than you imagine, it's more weird than you can. Imagine Uh, and there's almost certainly truth in that, but I think from my point of view as a biologist I'm asking well, what's life? Why is life this way on earth? Are there principles governing the trajectory the evolutionary history of life on earth? Beyond, you know population genetics and selection the standard evolutionary theory life actually took a very very weird path on earth and so the question is well Can we extrapolate from that is it fundamental Can we say from the fact that complex life on Earth only arose once in four billion years that therefore there's some genuine fundamental difficulty about it? And I would argue that there probably is and that that might uh, also play out elsewhere in the universe in which case, I'm not saying that complex life doesn't exist elsewhere, it's just that perhaps the, 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 the physicists hope, you might say, the cosmologists hope is that life is inevitable that it's seeded in the universe and that really any planet that's suitable to sustain life will end up with complex life like humans. And I would say that that is not a science fiction view, but probably an over-optimistic view. And I think that the likelihood is we will find bacteria almost everywhere we look, and that the hope for a kind of Star Wars scenario or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I love, by the way, uh, I would be surprised if it came to pass. So that's my pitch.
2: Thank you, Uh, Nick. What do you say about the wish to find other life forms? Is it a science fiction fantasy?
4: Well, I think there's a a kind of journey through life here. You know, when I was a a small boy, I was a a science geek, of course. Astronomy, universe, dinosaurs, all those sorts of things. And frankly, I still am, of course. Um, Aliens were everywhere. Doctor Who, Star Trek, fantastic movies, War of the Worlds... And generally, they were sinister, they were powerful, and they were really rather dangerous to know. Now, thinking of alien life like that, is that actually a motivation for trying to find life outside of the Earth? Or or is it just a reason for being very scared about what might be out there? Well, you know, I don't think that's got much to do with the question about life or the search for life. That's more about fears of other humans, about fears and threats here on Earth, but kind of writ large and given a spacey distance and veil of mystery. Um, basically, you know, we're, we're face, we would be facing things which were, I don't know, more powerful than us, but um, just as destructive as us. So I think you have to grow up a little bit and start to ask what sort of questions can we as human beings, not just as scientists, ask which are valid scientific questions. Um, Science questions don't get generated by a computer. Um, There's not some pre-written agenda for scientific questions. We are just as capable as any scientists or engineers in asking questions. Of course there are certain questions that are important today about how we live on earth the climate our health natural hazards things like that but also the questions that we ask and we ask ourselves at night here we've come into the universe knowing nothing about it what is this universe thing we're in what is life where did it come from are we alone those are valid questions that we can ask as the public and then the exciting thing is to start thinking about ways in which you can actually add knowledge to that. Thinking about ways in which you can start to chip away and answer some of those questions. Now, some people go straight out and listen out for alien radio broadcasts. Okay, that's like trying to sort of you know shake hands with them or, or, or something. Um, I feel that's still a bit linked to the scary aliens picture of powerful beings out there. Um, you know, I used, to be a, I used to be a radio astronomer myself. I trained in radio astronomy. And in my very group, a few years before me, not so very long before I was doing a, a, a PhD, uh, they actually discovered signals, beeps coming from deep space, regular beeps. And you, you, may, be, you may have heard of the, the scientist who was leading that at the time, doing her PhD. That was Jocelyn Bell. Um, So today, we're not looking to shake hands with aliens. We're looking at exciting ways to really answer questions which are relevant to this. Questions about the conditions on Earth in the past, conditions on other planets in our solar system, and even conditions on planets in other solar systems. These are realistic things to do now for scientists and engineers but they are linked to this big question that we all ask.
2: Okay, Monica? Well, Remind me it. what the question was. <laughs> the question is, is the wish to find other life forms a science fiction fantasy?
5: No. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, yeah, no, no, I,
5: I suppose I better expand yes. on that somewhat. No, yes. it is not a science fiction fantasy. I think 30 years ago, it was a science fiction fantasy because... We didn't know enough about the, the range of life on Earth, the, the types of conditions that life could exist in. We didn't know about the possibilities of um, planets around stars beyond our own. We didn't know about the uh, types of life that could exist in all sorts of niches in Antarctica, in the deep oceans, and so on and so forth. So it is not science fiction to want to look for life beyond the Earth. I think it is science fiction somewhat, as, as, as both my colleagues mentioned, to, to look for something that looks like us. I mean, we are designed to operate in this gravity. We are designed to operate with a particular um, solar radiation. We are designed to, to deal with life on Earth. Life on Mars would look different. Life on Europa would look different. Life on you know, one of the planets around another star would look different because every planet is different. You know, Even Earth-like planets differ one from another because Mars is an Earth-like planet. So we're not going out as scientists, I don't think we're going out to look for something that looks like us. 66 million years ago, we would have been looking for life that looked like a dinosaur but then they were wiped out. And so the little furry mammals could, could evolve to to where, to where they've got to now. And so things change. So you start off with the same materials, but they develop in, in different ways. Now Nick said that complex life, I think he said this, only got going once on Earth. Mm-hmm. How do you know?
3: Well, we don't know, but there you go. We you see what we okay. do so complex I so come yeah, back you on that. We're, we're
5: just gonna, finishing We're going the to come back yet, to that yet, one. Yeah. yeah. So it's the sort yeah. of thing that we don't know what the original types of life were on Earth because they could have got wiped out, and the only the seed that that germinated that that became us only started 3.5 billion years ago. So there could have
2: been other life forms. So. But We'll take up on that one for a moment. But first, before we can even discuss what we expect to find in space, let's try and define what life is. I mean, scientists have discussed this for centuries, but could you try and give us a definition that we can use uh, what is life?
3: Well, I, no, I can't. Um, because <laughs> I actually um, go out of my way not to try and define life because life is essentially a process in the continuum. Um, so, so if you're working on the origin of life, at what point does some kind of cell-like entity become a living entity that we define as life? Well, you could, you could draw a line across that continuum almost anywhere you want. Uh, and if you we were looking for life on another planet, um, you know, you're looking for, let's say, uh, disequilibrium of gases in an atmosphere, but geology can do that and life can do that, and it's a matter of degree. And Where do you draw the line across it? So we, we don't really know. Similarly, is a virus alive or not? Biologists can't agree among themselves about that question. So I think, it's, I think there's a degree of maths envy that we would like to have an equation and simply have a kind of gamma sign for life and, and, and define it like that. There isn't such a thing. Um, there, 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 it's much more muddy than that. And so I think the question really is a frustrating one, and better to ask, well, what is living, what what, what do living things do? How do they change their environment? What, what, what do they have in common? It's a much muddier question, but it's one that we can actually answer in a practical way.
2: Right. But you would not say trees and plants are, are- living beings? Certainly they're
3: living beings.
2: Okay so but but where we're looking for when we look in space we go over to bacteria or it also plants could be what we're looking for? Well
3: we're back to this question about life Uh, you know I I said life had a complex life on earth by which I mean specifically eukaryotic cells which are our own kind of cell which have got a nucleus with lots of DNA in. Now plants are eukaryotes like us so are fungi so are algae um, all animals, uh, and things like amoeba and so on. Now, I say they arose once. That's to say we all share a common ancestor because we all have the same kit, basically. We're The, 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 type, the structure of the cells and the biochemistry of the cells and the genes, we all share them. We plainly have a common ancestor, not so very long ago, with plants. Um, now, perhaps there could have been hundreds of separate origins of complex cells, complex life on Earth, but. There's no evidence for that. We've been looking across Earth uh, for a long time, finding things, finding unexpected things. We sequence them mostly, apart from some very weird groups of bacteria recently. They fit within groups that we already know about. So it would be reasonable to say, well, it might be out there, but we haven't found it, and we've spent a lot of time looking. Um, and, and the other aspect is, well, it could be in the fossil record. And there's no sense in the fossil record of anything really, there's some weird weird things that we don't know what they are. But by and large, before about two billion years ago, we can see lots of bacteria and nothing that's larger or more complex. So we could say either way, but one way has the evidence on its side. There is no evidence for more than one origin, and the other one is has got some human wishful thinking in it. Oh sure, it, it's got to be. You know, there's got to be more than that. I think it's more interesting scientifically to say. What if it really did only happen once? What does that tell us about life in the universe? What can we infer from that? Does it tell us anything really or are we just imagining things? I think it tells us something.
2: Just before we move on, um, what will you define, if you can say it very briefly, that is the difference between uh, simple life and the complex life? Uh,
3: So simple life, I'm thinking of bacteria, and they are not simple. Please don't get me wrong on this. These are enormously complex biochemical systems. But if you look down an electron microscope, it's a lozenge shape or it's a sphere, and there's not much that you can see inside it. A eukaryotic cell is perhaps 10 to 100,000 times larger in volume, and it's got all kinds of funky things going on inside that are large enough to see with a microscope. So it's, it's, again, it's a continuum. They do cross each other, but there are no bacteria that are on a kind of... Uh, this, this you know, There's absolutely nothing like a flea made from bacterial cells. Let's let's leave it at that. Okay,
2: thank you very much. Um, Monica, I move on to you. I think Nick gave an explanation of why he argues there's only one origin uh, and what life is. What do you think of this explanation? And also, what is life to you? What is life to me? Well... The famous um, astrobiologist,
5: astronomer, Carl Sagan said, to say I'll know it when I see it is not good enough. Because a lot of people say, well, of course you know what life is. It's obvious. It's obvious. And it's not. I mean, Nick gave the example of a, of a virus. You know, it's like, is it is it alive? Well, it needs something else to help it go through it, it, its life cycle. So clearly it, it can't live by itself. So this idea of... Building up life from building blocks and getting getting started, until you've got a bag of chemicals that suddenly go, "I'm alive." It, it, it's like where, as as Nick said, do you draw that line? Where, it, when is it a bag of chemicals, and when is it something that's alive? And that, as I understand it, and I'm not a biochemist, um, one of the uh, ways of defining this, uh, which I which I I like and, and I can understand, is that something is living when it can transfer information from one generation to the next when you've got this so it's all about information transfer yeah and the virus so, is
3: alive by that definition of course
5: right well fine yes. that's, that's that I'm happy about you know that, i yes. i would i would be happy about that because i would not be happy if a virus was dead was
4: was not <laughs> no no, no sorry sorry dead, no that's but... what? i would not be happy
5: if a virus was not a living thing you know because it means i'd be suffering all these colds for nothing but so my feeling my feeling is that if something is alive, it is able to transfer information from one generation to the next, and then when you talk, start looking about evolution, it's how that information gets gets changed a little bit and and, and modified. You
3: could say a computer oh. or a book yeah, transfers information from one generation uh, yeah, to yeah. the next. Yeah, but it
5: doesn't do it by itself, yeah. necessarily, unless we're starting talking <laughs> about AI and and, and, and uh, uh, neural networking and, and stuff like that, but a simple... Computer code has to be input by somebody, something. It doesn't
2: spontaneously arrive.
3: I think we're back to the difficulty so, of defining life Exactly, really, aren't we? yeah. Right,
2: yeah. But then I'll move on the one to Ralph. And if you would also expand on the thought, what kind of life, if we go with the definition, if you're happy with Nick's definition of life, or you go with Monica's <laughs> definition, is that the kind of life you expect to find in space, or what? kind of life would you expect? What
4: well, I would... take I take quite a, a kind of an engineering view of life, as it were, not a biological view. I, I think of it in terms of something which has an effect on its environment. We've been touching on that a bit from what we've been saying already, because I'm concerned with the things which you need to see to detect. If you think about the earth, you know, it seems to me that life in whatever forms, however it started, has co-evolved with the Earth. It is of the Earth, the Earth is of life. And we see the effect on the environment, we see the effect on the composition of the atmosphere, we see the effect on things in the ocean, Great Barrier Reef, for example, Um, City of London, um, uh, radio transmissions, all sorts of things. It's having an an effect. But so
5: does a great huge forest fire in the Amazon. Or a volcano. Or
4: volcano. In, indeed, but if life isn't having an effect, then it's not having much fun, to be honest. Um, and yes, <laughs> so you there know, are questions we have to
2: just find bacteria, you know, out in space. That's you want something that has an actual effect on us.
4: Well, bacteria would oh, certainly have an effect. <laughs> so, it would certainly right. have an effect. No, indeed. I mean I'm just generalizing it to something which has an, an effect on its environment. And that opens up the practical questions of distinguishing that biological effect from non-biological effects, the forest fire, the volcano, whatever it may be, into those practical issues of how you distinguish those things. And that's what we've been learning a lot about. You know, it's almost um, uh, like a a greater sophistication um, from just expecting to go and shake hands with an alien to thinking much more carefully about what things, observations are relevant to detecting life and understanding life.
2: Right. But you would expect to find complex life in space um with this are you just open nope. to whatever nope. we would I'm find no i'm totally
4: <laughs> open I, I, from a sensing point of view i think you have to be totally open and to be willing to recognize processes that you detect effects on environments and to build confidence in understanding those well enough to distinguish between when they are biological in origin or when they're not biological in origin and that's a really hot debate at the moment in both in planetary science going and scratching around the surface of the planet or even looking into the atmospheres of planets around other stars. That question of distinguishing the effect of biology from the effect of geology or some other process is really a hot issue.
2: Yeah, and that leads me straight into the second theme um, would we fail to recognize life outside Earth, and it comes back to yeah, what what life is in terms of that. It has been suggested that if we assume that life has to be somehow carbon-based life forms like us, is that would that be restricting our progress? So Ralph, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Is in the line that we're well, we talking that's that's thought.
4: that's why I I, I generalize it um, uh, a, a lot into that. Um, you could take a I'm a particular example that is still rumbling on. Back in 1976, there were two very successful and interesting missions to the planet Mars, the Viking missions. And they carried sophisticated experiments designed with the best knowledge at the time uh, to seek out processes which could be considered to be biological. We're still not quite sure what to make of the results of those experiments.
2: Well...
5: Some so, of us are yeah. fairly sure.
4: <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> Let's hear you on this, Monica. Yeah. So what are you exactly sure of? Well, uh, uh, Ralph's
5: talking about experiments done by the Viking landers, and there were several sets of experiments. And out of the, I can't remember how many experiments there were, four or five, something like that, one experiment gave a... Particular results which could have been interpreted as showing that there was something in the soil that was metabolizing. So what they did was they the the, the robots took some soil and they added a chemical to it, and uh, it evolved CO2. Now this uh, uh, they uh, uh, doped um, the the chemical with carbon 14, and so the idea was that right, actually um, some carb if the if there was a creature in there that was metabolizing, something with carbon-14 would come back out again. Um, and so they put the chemical on, and lo and behold, it produced carbon-14 and CO2. But they put a second dose in, and a third dose, and no more came out. Now, you so you know, you could, say, you could say they've <laughs> killed it, or you could say that it was a simple chemical reaction and actually, That one of the reactants had been used up. And we know so much more about the composition of the Martian soil now than we did then. There's whole new sets of chemistries that we understand the Martian soil is going on. I think this is
4: exactly it. Through subsequent work that's been done on planetary science, we are building up that knowledge so that we are better positioned to be able to distinguish between biological and non-biological. Now, I would say we still don't fully know how to do that. The Mm -hmm. next step we are taking... ExoMars rover. There's a display on on, on that. Right, there.
2: I went there. I saw, and that yeah. will
4: carry experiments looking at things like the chirality of molecules, That's for great. example. In order to uh, certain molecules occur in right-handed or left-handed senses, and most chemical reactions produce the same amount of of each. Biology tends, at least on Earth, tends to produce an excess of a certain handedness. So if we can see that excess. Can we then infer that what we're detecting is biological in origin? That's essentially the, one of the key experiments. That's our idea today. Maybe it will still be our idea tomorrow, but it will be a stepping stone in gaining knowledge of the environment and the ways of testing biology versus geology on, a, on another planet.
2: Yeah, but you, as a total layman, I have to—you would all three agree that the method that Monica described now would be a standard way to determine if there was life in these tests.
3: That would be a way for determining if life on Mars was similar to life oh, on Earth, and it, it was and okay. cell and bacterial were, cells with some kind of metabolism. And it was yes.
5: metabolizing
2: in the same way that we yes. did, but there's no, nothing to say that it does. No, okay, but yeah, it was yeah. just to, to yeah, get yeah, this yeah. one clear. The number one to you, Nick. Um, what kind of life would you expect to find out? I know you started off saying we won't find anything that's as complex as us, but could well, we find something?
3: I mean, I, I suppose the, the, there's two questions. I mean, we've, we've kept this with biological life, <laughs> which is an interesting thing, because it, it could be, you know, we, someone mentioned AI already, yeah. and perhaps it's far more likely that if there is some civilization out there, then what we would actually interact with would be some kind of AI. And
2: why uh, would that be more likely? Well,
3: because it, it can do long space flights and so on without necessarily having a, a mortal life. So th- but why for- would they
2: have to do long space flight? If we do the long well, space flight to meet them, they might just stay on their planet. We,
3: well, yes, possibly. <laughs> but um, the question is, how far could you spread, I suppose? So, so, so we're back around, <laughs> would it be carbon-based is, is an interesting question. And I think the answer is overwhelmingly likely, yes, it would be. Because carbon is, is ubiquitous. It's, it's one of the most common elements in the universe. And it's very good at the chemistry that it does. It's very good at forming large, stable molecules. And it comes in a handy building block, and unlike silicon oxide, which is sand, which at a molecular level is an enormous molecule, CO2, you pluck it out of the air, you add it onto something else, you take another one, it's like a Lego brick. So you can build anything you want from CO2 in an atmosphere, which is again, very common. So life can bootstrap itself up on a planet from carbon. And it can do it particularly well in water. Carbon doesn't dissolve terribly well, for example, in liquid methane, which, Tends to, if you want a carbon-based life form, then I'm not sure I'd be looking to Titan, for example, where there are pools of liquid or oceans of liquid methane as, as the place to look. So you can begin to hone it down and say, well, what we know about life here is CO2 and carbon, probably, as, a, as per a planet bootstrapping itself up from the ground, it's probably gonna be carbon-based. And if it's gonna be carbon-based, it's gotta react CO2 with hydrogen. That's not an easy reaction. The way all life does it on Earth is to have electri- electrified membranes, basically, They happen in hydrothermal environments, but that would tend to, you know, that favors this reaction and makes organic molecules make cells. That's that's an assertion. It may not be true, but if it is true, then it would tend to funnel life down a particular path where there's a degree of predictability about what it would look like. That's dull, I admit. If we come up with, with something along the lines of AI, then none of those constraints apply. It can be essentially anything. There's a very nice example uh, that influenced me a lot as a as a, as a boy, uh, the Black Cloud, which is oh, a, yeah, yeah, a, a yeah. novel Fred um, by Fred Hoyle. It's a great novel, and uh, I, I won't. If you if you read it, you, you'll know. If you haven't read it, it's essentially a large, kind of almost solar system-sized black cloud that comes between uh, the Earth and the Sun, um, and and it's intelligent. And it raises a lot of questions for a biologist well how did it come to be intelligent you need populations of things to to have selection but there was also a a nice argument that i read that said well hang on a minute if it was intelligent it would have to have a brain capable of operating quite quickly it's got to communicate across almost solar system distances which are going to take minutes for light to cross therefore how intelligent can it actually be could it hold a conversation in real time and the answer they came up with was probably not. These are the kind of constraints even on something which is a wonderful imaginative idea, but is it actually realistic? Now, maybe the speed of light really isn't a constant and really doesn't affect things, but I doubt that. I I think it's more likely that we're not going to find a black cloud, however sad that statement might be. So I think we will find life like bacteria as we do here. We're unlikely to find large complex aliens unless it be AI type things.
4: And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: And then I'll just go L- to Monica. Let me... Yeah. Let me yeah. Can I, you imagine <laughs> some you very different down. life forms? yeah. And even yeah, if you yeah. go further and further out. Usually, I...
5: in most circumstances, I would agree with everything Nick has said, all right? Yes. But just to be argumentative, Good. all right? Because <laughs> it's not a debate unless we argue about things. <laughs> he said... He, he, Nick said that, (laughs) that, um, you know, carbon's handy, you know, you can take a carbon atom, you can make it carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, you can dissolve it in water, all these sorts of things. Sure, you can. What do astronomers see when they look at newly forming stars and the clouds in which they form? Actually, what they see are tiny, tiny grains of dust. Now, astronomers call this dust silicate dust. And silicate is something which is made up of silicon and oxygen. Mineralogists, geologists subclassify the silicates into, uh, into huge, enormous families of different minerals, but it doesn't matter. What we see are 10 micron-sized grains of silicon and oxide, silicon and oxygen chains. And they act as nuclei, and they get encased in ice. And yes, carbon and other elements, particularly hydrogen, can get, particularly hydrogen, gets buried in the ice through radiation. And there's actually a lot of complex chemistry goes on on these silicate grains encased in ice. And you can imagine, maybe you know, these things eventually they grow to become planets. Yes, but perhaps they could take evolution in a slightly different direction and they could become almost a black cloud of of, of these little silicate grains if they haven't actually become joined up to become a a planet or or swept in to become a star. So we do have these starting points, these starting blocks which could act, at the moment we think they're more likely to be a, a substrate on which bigger carbon-based molecules build up. But there have been arguments that these actually could be a template for another type of mineral to, to build up as well for replication. So there's, there's things called the clay world, where things are based on clay. Now it's not thought to be very likely, but you know, <laughs> let's, let's work with it. Let's, let's say, right, actually, there's another star which has got a different type of radiation from the star, from our star, which is actually a different wavelength. And so you've got a different type of uh, reactions going on. And it's the type of wavelength, the radiation wavelength, which doesn't allow carbon to bond with another carbon bond because we know there is radiation which will break a carbon to carbon bond. So say you've got a different radiation, but it does allow a silicon oxygen bond to build up. And that actually, your, your lattices, your templates, your, your rings ba- build up in that way. Now, we are formed for our particular planetary system, but that doesn't mean that what has built, built up here is going to build up in a planetary
2: system around a red giant star, something else. So, I'll just finish on this theme with, with Ralph. Um, are we maybe looking for the wrong... Thing, if we're looking for a life that we recognize as life. Yesterday I was in a debate with Rupert Sheldrake who argued that the sun, the moon, the whole universe has consciousness. If that is true, that is a life form. So maybe it's already there. So <laughs> what do you think about it?
4: <laughs> I, I get very worried about preconceived ideas of what life w- is like. Um, I, I was uh, amused, I, I recognized some, some as Monica was talking, I mean, not so many years ago, there was a, quite a popular theory. Um, you mentioned Fred Hoyle earlier. Um, Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wickramasingh. Um, I went to a, a lecture as a student um, by Wickramasingh. His opening a slide, big slide, big letters. Interstellar grains are bacteria. Now, okay, that's an interesting assertion and maybe a, a, a big assumption of what is, what is out there. I just react to that as being something which is not based on any real evidence, is not something which is, um, well, I mean, it is testable. If you get interstellar grains and you find they're not bacteria, and as far as we know, they are not bacteria. Um, although it was interesting listening to Monica talking about the sort of processes that go on in those, those, those situations, it is interesting. Um, so I have to avoid the preconceived ideas. Um, I have, that's why I always go back to this thing about effects and the environment and starting at that point and improving our understanding of those in, environments. But you're still
3: starting with the yeah. preconceived idea that that life has effects on the environment that we can measure, I suppose, in the, in the simplest But I,
4: sense. I, I'd, I'd question whether, we're, whether we have any philosophical philosophical interest in something which doesn't have an effect. As I said, (laughs) it can't be having a very interesting time. It can't be having much fun if it's not having an effect.
2: (laughs) Um. Okay, but um, (laughs) that brings us on to the third theme of the day. What will it mean for humanity if we find that we are not alone? So that means that you would be wrong and Ralph would be right, but basically
3: Um, <laughs> if we could recognize yes, it. Yes, <laughs> if we can
2: recognize it as life in a way that you have so eloquently defined. Um, from science fiction to UFO things, it seems like we are loving and reliant on this idea that there is something else out there that we are not alone. But how will we really change the perspective on Earth if we do find some other species somewhere? What will happen?
5: I think it depends what you find. Um, she said nomically, um, that once Ralph's apparatus has gone to Mars, okay, and has dug a great big hole in the soil, and it's found, well, it's going to go two meters down, you know, it's going to be a great big drill core, and, and has found evidence for microbial life on Mars. There's going to be great fandango of news, you know, whoa, you know, we are not alone, we have found life life in the solar system, we have found life on Mars, you know, there'll be a whole load of press, you know, it'd be nice to think that money was being thrown at science, but I doubt that would happen. But what will it mean if we find bacteria on Mars? Will it change your life in any great way? Okay, now people of a... Uh, who are religious, and I count myself relatively in that because I'm a Catholic, all right, if we are created in the image of God to find that there is a second genesis, a second life form, this sort of thing, might have enormous religious implications. It ought to have enormous ethical implications you know, do we then have the right to send astronauts to Mars? Should we send other missions to Mars? And so on and so forth. But I think, for the, for, by and large, for the general public, they aren't going to mind really very much at all. And if we find anything bigger than a bacterium on Mars or actually on the surface of any of the planets in the solar system, I'd be very surprised if we find anything that can interact with us in any way that means anything. You know, so tube worms on the floor of Europa, yeah, exciting, more complex than bacteria on Mars, but not going to interact with us in in
2: any meaningful way. And And what if the opposite happens—that we, to the extent that all signs, all missions show, we find nothing? What would that mean for us on Earth?
5: Well, first of all. You you know you can't prove a negative, so you can just say, oh, they didn't go to the right place. We didn't find it yet. We didn't yeah. find it yet, but that would that would be a very very interesting thing. And so I don't know. And and everything else is so far away, you know. The nearest planet is four light years. Nearest uh, star is four four light years away. So it's going to take so long for us to get there, or for anything to come to us.
2: What do you think, Nick? If Contrary to your experience, something slightly more complex than a little bacteria is found somewhere. I I think in in, in
3: some very real sense, we are not alone. We are sharing the planet with all these species that we're killing. Um, And... You know, they are a- alien <laughs> forms of life in many respects, but we understand them. We simply can, we can communicate with them in some way. You if know, we you can look it, yes. into the eyes of an octopus and you can see a sentient being that is thinking about things and, and is curious and is interacting with the world, but diverged from us hundreds of millions of years ago. So I think, I mean, the, the thing that worries me, I suppose, is humans have got a very bad history of killing anything that gets in the way, including uh, other branches of, of um, Homo. And and um, and we're doing it to the world, and it's a terrible thing. And if we see if we find complex life out there, either we're going to kill it, or it's going to kill us. Um, right.
2: Or, so <laughs> should we rather stop looking for it, no, and instead I, I no, let me just should, finish yes. the and instead respect more all the different forms of life on this earth? I, I, I think still that's the first um, thing so we have to
3: respect the life on Earth and and, and glory in it because it's. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and actually, as a broader point, I think this is one thing that a lot of astrobiologists do. It, uh, looking for life in space yeah. focuses the mind on life on Earth, I think, to a, to, a, to a very considerable extent. And it, because it, you, you step out from the planet and look back at it and appreciate just how rare and wonderful it is, what we have and what, what we're doing to it.
2: But it doesn't but, seem to make us respect more No, it doesn't.
3: And I, but I, I think that we we, we we are beginning to. I think I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the younger generation, really. Is caring and getting engaged, right. and I think the older generation are beginning to, and, you know, there's lots of problems, but there's hope, too. Right. Um, well, yeah.
2: let's go on then to then, Ralph. What do you think would be the consequence for our Earth if something is found out there that you would define as, as life and maybe a little bit more complex than the, the well, most I simple.
4: tend to agree with what um, Nick and Monica have been saying, um, <laughs> but... <sighs> Actually, I would fear for it. I think we are are the local space plague. um, That's quite interesting. This eminent scientists
2: say we are the danger for the potential life we would find. But why are we then looking for it if we know we'll do damage to it? We're looking for it because it is
4: that big question that we, we want to understand how we came to be where we are, and we want to understand whether we are alone. Now, it may be that understanding about how we came to be ourselves means the focus has to be on really understanding more about conditions on the Earth and the origin of life on the Earth. We're up against a big statistical problem here. I can give you no probabilities for finding life in any form outside of the Earth, on any planet, under any conditions, because today we only have one common ancestor that we're aware of on the Earth. Now, that's not telling us about the origin of life on the Earth, but it's telling us that everything we know about on the Earth today had one common ancestor. So that's saying that as far as we know, it only evolved once. It's not saying that is the case, but as far as we know. Now, once you've only got that, I've got no means of saying there's 50% probability of finding life on Mars or one in a thousand or one in a million. It's until you've got another bit of evidence, some other evidence of another evolutionary path on the earth and understand why that came to uh, about then you can start mapping that onto other planets and other other worlds and start having some idea of how likely it is but But, today we don't have that
2: no but Ralph if you feel quite convinced that we might do damage to the life we would find and anyway we're doing it that narcissistic narcissistic reason to kind of Find our own origin a bit better. Isn't it really unethical to do missions to find life in space?
4: Well, we we wrap them up with careful control to make sure that we are carrying as little life from Earth to Mars. I mean, I, I've got a rover. It's been built in Chelmsford. I don't want to see. Sorry, not in Chelmsford. In, Stevenage. In, in, Stevenage. Where I live is <laughs> Chelmsford. Um, in <coughs> Stevenage. I don't want to find Stevenage life on Mars. Um, (laughs) Some would say, would would
2: one want to find
4: Stevenage
2: life
5: anywhere other than (laughs) Stevenage?
4: (laughs) But we can, it doesn't have to be zero. You know, we don't have to go with nothing because we can, we can at least postulate that over the the lifetime of the solar system, there has been some exchange of material between Mars and the the Earth. So we're not really feeling obliged to have it, it utterly pristine. But we do want to keep things to, to levels which actually enable us to minimize, as far as we can, the likelihood of contaminating what we find and being able to unambiguously detect things from Mars that are from Mars and not from Stevenage when we get there.
2: Right. But and I how, think it is. is, there is a, can I ask, yeah, the whole is that controllable? I mean, you're a scientist from a certain part of the world that maybe. Uh, uh, have to work under some regulations. But there are scientists all over the world, and maybe there's someone in North Korea who will follow their leader and say, we will do this differently than the yes. others. And so once we've done something and if we, yes. we find life, yes. is it at all controllable, even with the best of your will?
3: Uh, probably not. No. No. Um, I mean, I, I think we should try and do our best. But I, I think the, the urge to explore, the urge to seek new... Ideas, new places is a really deep human urge, and uh, you know, from a scientific point of view, I, I think there's there's two there's, there's two parallel strands in most scientists and some some people are extreme of I- either end point. There's there's the the explorers, the 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 dreamers who don't want to have any constraints, almost as you were saying that. It could be anything and it's mm. quite true. It could be anything. If you have closed minds and you're not looking properly, you're not gonna find it. We simply should go places and look for things and we don't know what we'll find. And then the other side is the kind of the naysayer side that says, well, hang on a minute, you, you're wrong about that bit or you're wrong about that. And you know, it's a, it's a kind of negative role, but science needs to correct itself and both sides are, are really important. And most scientists are trained to try and do both to some extent. So I think it's too deep a human urge not to look for life elsewhere.
5: (laughs) The most important thing for a scientist to be is creative, because being creative, you can look, hateful phrase, outside the box. A creative person can see things and, and imagine things and try and design things to achieve that goal. A computer is not creative, not at the moment. You know, the next generation of quantum computers might be, you know, once you've got through this in AI type stuff. But at the moment, it does
2: what it's told. It does what it's programmed to do. It's not creative. We are all the time. I think on creativity is a good place to stop and thank our eminent panel, yeah. Nick Lane,
1: Ralph Cordian, Monica Grady. Thank um, Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times podcast was brought to you by the institute of arts and ideas in partnership with airbus the podcast was hosted by me anna Carey, and our guests this week were ralph cordy nick lane and monica grady if you'd like more on today's subject then please do have a listen to our recent episode into the unknown with martin reese tony milligan and elizabeth seward which explores the future of space travel and what this means for humanity as ever, please do make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And now you've listened to today's episode, please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. We'd really appreciate this as it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks again. Tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.